Good morning, good morning, and welcome to the Critical Social Worker Podcast. My name is Christian A. Stetler, and I am a professor in the social work department at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And this morning, I'm broadcasting live from Auk Bay in Juneau, Alaska. And I have to say, it's a beautiful morning, and uh, the sunshine, when it comes around here in southeast Alaska, it almost makes you forget how much it rains in other parts of the year. Uh, so I'm very, feeling very blessed this morning to be broadcasting with the sun behind me. Um, and you might notice that my normal co-host, Lee, she's not here today. Well, she is here, but she's not here. She's here as a listener. She's got other business going on, uh, important uh, NASW work. Um, and so hopefully she'll be able to call in later with a question or chat with us for a bit. We can move her into the room. But instead of Lee, we're fortunate to have Kim here with us this morning as a co-host. How's it, Kim? I'm doing good. Hi, everyone. Hi to the listeners and hi to our guest, Alicia, for today. All right. Well, we got a really great show planned for you this morning, or maybe it's the afternoon for you, but either way, it should be a great show. So make sure that you stay tuned in. So we'll be speaking to Alicia Stetler from Living Irie, and she'll be talking about her unique journey through life and social work, her experiences as a clinical therapist, a revolutionary yoga program she's been putting together, parenting, and more. Um, so, and if you didn't already know, Alicia's my wife, my partner, so it may, it may just get a little bit personal, so stick around. Uh, but before we do that, there's just a few things that we ought to cover. First of all, this project, The Critical Social Worker, is supported by the Social Work Department at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. However, we want to be clear that any opinions expressed on this podcast, be it by host, guest, or listeners calling in, do not necessarily reflect the values of the Social Work Department, College of Liberal Arts, the University of Alaska Fairbanks, or any of its affiliates. The opinions and ideas shared belong to the speaker alone. All right. So, yeah, if you don't like something that we say, blame it on us individually. And with that being said, Kim, do you mind sharing our mission statement as well? Sure. The Critical Social Worker podcast is dedicated to promoting critical dialogue within the social work profession while valuing the multidimensional person. We recognize that every person has a unique story and set of experiences, and we strive to use our platform to unfold these stories and share diverse perspectives. Our aim is to produce a safe and inclusive space for individuals from all backgrounds to share their stories and ideas, fostering empathy and understanding among our audience. Through storytelling, we hope to promote the values of social work and encourage a sense of community. By engaging in these dialogues and sharing stories, we believe we can produce critical consciousness and heighten awareness of ourselves, the world, and the power structures that shape it. In essence, our lofty goals include changing ourselves and the world one story at a time. Yeah, and just to add on to that a little bit, you know, one of the underlying themes that she mentioned in that mission statement is obviously the idea of telling stories. And at The Critical Social Worker, we believe that each individual is multi-layered with unique life experiences, and we want to help unfold some of these layers through stories that we can learn and grow from, stories that help build critical consciousness. I would like to shout out the University of Alaska Fairbanks Social Work Department, which I am personally part of. They're among the top rated programs in the country for online BSW programs. 
They're also, they also offer very affordable in-state tuition, allowing students to earn their degree from anywhere in the world. And a unique aspect that they add is the focus on Indigenous culture, which I, I personally think adds a lot of value to the individual classes. Right on. Thanks, Kim. And if you want to find us, just Google us, University of Alaska Fairbanks Social Work, UAF Social Work. We aren't hard to find. And uh, do you, what about you? Do you have a story to tell? And are you interested in coming on the show as a guest? If you are, hit me up with an email. You can reach me at castetler at alaska.edu. That's C-A-S-T-E-T-T-L-E-R at alaska.edu. And now before we get to our main event with Alicia, there's something I want to talk about first. And I was wondering, Kim, if you wouldn't mind reading our principle number 10. Principle 10, emphasize transformative experiences. The podcast seeks to create a space for transformative experiences for its hosts, guests, and listeners. By promoting open and honest dialogue and reflection, the podcast endeavors to motivate individuals to change themselves and thus the world. All right. All right. Thank you, Kim. And so I thought we might emphasize transformative experiences right here in the here and now, and we might create a transformative experience for ourselves. So I want to do a little bit of an exercise. Um, so I want you to begin by taking a moment to center ourselves. Um, find somewhere comfortable to sit down. Close your eyes if you want, but not if you're driving. Um, and take a deep breath through your nose and just fill up your lungs. And exhale slowly through your mouth and release any tension or stress that you might be holding on to. Repeat this process a few more times. Breathe in through your nose, all the way to the bottom of your lungs before releasing slowly through the mouth, focusing on the sensation of the breath moving in and out of your body. One more time, breathe in really deep and let it go. All right, so for this next part, like I said, you're welcome to close your eyes or keep them open if that makes you feel more comfortable. Um, but I want you to bring your attention inwards to your heart, and I want you to notice any feelings that might be weighing you down, any burdens that you might be carrying. We're, we all have them. Maybe it's financial stress. Maybe you have health concerns, feelings of loneliness. Maybe you're overworked or overburdened with your schoolwork. Whatever it might be, acknowledge it and let it go, allowing yourself to be fully present in this moment. As you continue to breathe deeply, expand your awareness to the world around you. Visualize the planet, Earth, and all of the problems it's facing. War, hunger, selfishness, overconsumption, loss of life, and pollution. Take a moment to feel the weight of those issues and the impact that they might have on us, on our relatives, on all the different inhabitants of Mother Earth. And now shift your focus to the field of social work. What kinds of burdens do social workers face? Maybe it's over-professionalization. Maybe it's not being paid enough or feeling overworked and underappreciated. Take a moment to acknowledge these challenges for you and for other social workers and recognize the importance of the work that social workers do. Now I want you to visualize yourself chained up, literally in chains, with the earth and the world. You feel restricted and suffocated and you're you feel like you're unable to make a positive impact. But then you hear a whisper from the universe, an invitation to break free of those chains. And suddenly you feel a surge of energy and strength flowing through you as you rip the chains from yourself, freeing both yourself and the world from bondage. 
As you bask in the energy of the universe, allow yourself to imagine your future. Visualize yourself living in harmony with the world and the universe, practicing positive social work and being the master of your own destiny. See yourself happy, fulfilled, and empowered to make a difference in the world. Now imagine that you are outside, far away from the city in nature, no light pollution, and you look up and there's clouds swirling away to expose a magnificent and dark night sky filled with countless shining stars. And as you look at the stars, you notice they start to kind of move around slowly in circles, and it feels like the stars are about to dance. And then you point your finger in the air towards a group of stars on one side of the sky, and they, began to they begin to dance around in circles, almost like they were doing it just for you, forming the most beautiful shapes. You point your finger at another group of stars, and they start dancing in circles too. Soon all the stars are part of a beautiful dance in the sky, choreographed and conducted through you. The stars are attuned to you and respond to your will. They make you feel happy and powerful. The stars are telling you that you can do anything that you dream of, and they wish the very best for you. So you thank the stars for this wonderful experience, and they sparkle back in acknowledgement. They sparkle for you. They're saying that you have the power to break free from the chains that bind you and to manifest the future that you desire. So I want to congratulate you on taking this first step to invite the universe to help manifest your dreams. Take a deep breath in again and exhale it slowly. And when you're ready, you can open your eyes and return to the present moment, charged with the powers of the universe, feeling empowered and ready to take on the world. You never know, that just might be the first ripple in the rest of your life. Anyways, all right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. But I think that uh, it's time to get this show officially started. episode four of the critical social worker i'm your host christian a wookie living in a beach house leading yoga and i'm here with my co-host kim we have the pleasure of having alicia stetler to join us this morning alicia strives to spread optimal health well-being and love to as many people as possible as a clinical therapist and certified yoga teacher alicia has worked in community mental health medical social work school social work, and private practice, combining therapeutic practices with traditional yoga philosophies. Alicia is also the founder of Living Irie, a transformative holistic wellness community offering counseling and yoga therapy programs that focus on multidimensional wellness, empowerment, self-discovery, growth, and personal evolution. Thanks, Kim. And uh, if you don't know already, like I said a little bit earlier, Alicia is my partner and wife. And we met, we've been social workers together from the beginning. We met while attending a, a class together at Hawaii Pacific University as we, tried, we were attempting to obtain our MSWs. 
And from the day that we've met, we've never really been apart. Um, a few days here and there for work or whatever, but we've been together ever since. We have three beautiful children, Zaid, Naya, and Aaliyah, that Alicia should be very proud of. In addition to being a great therapist, a great clinical social worker, Alicia is as wonderful and caring as a mother and wife that anyone could ever ask for. Um, but you know, Alicia, I was looking at old pictures the other day of when we first met, and wow, I forgot how much of a baby face that you had. Um, not saying that you don't have one now, but it was really a baby face back then. And it's just really what it reminded me is how much you've grown as a person, as a human being, as a mother, as a partner, and as a social worker. Um, I've seen your, your confidence elevate. I've seen your productivity elevate. I've seen, um, you know, despite being a very uh, extremely caring and empathetic individual when we met, all of those things have increased significantly, your ability to deal with stress and anxiety. And I was wondering if you might uh, just get us started off by telling us a story of your growth. You know, how did you come to be who you are today? Yeah, thank you for that introduction. I should come on here more, hear all those nice things. Definitely still have a baby face. But um, so today I'm going to tell a story about a, a very young, anxious, nervous, timid, um, naive little girl um, who took a journey through life. Um, and became a clinical therapist. So it's, of course, a story about me, um, but it's a story about living with, managing, um, at times thriving with anxiety. Um, it's a story about self-discovery um, and a, a story about um, working with racial challenges as well. So uh, a little bit of context. I, um, I have a very weird combined accent now, but you'll hear the British accent in me. Um, I was born in the Isle of Man, which is a small island um, right between England and Ireland. Um, and it's, it's a very, it's not, there's not a lot of diversity. It's um, predominantly white. I'm from a mixed race family. Um, so my father is British Jamaican. My mother is British Caucasian. Um, so we lived there up until I was 11. And then we moved to another island, beautiful island of Guernsey. Um, and that is right on the coast of France. Um, again, it's, it's beautiful, but there's very little diversity there. So um, what I'm trying to get at with this is that I, I was living in a mixed race family and we had a lot, very little diversity around us, myself and my brother. Um, and it was hard. It was, it was hard not really fitting in um, to different circles. Um, I definitely attached to school that was my focus. Um, I was a swimmer too, um, and a cheerleader at times. So I was outwardly, I had um, some confidence, but my inner world, I was full of anxiety. Um, and I really didn't know truly who, who I was, who I wanted to be. Um, and so one, one story within that, that I'll share, um, when I was thinking about this, it brought it back when I was in high school and high school in the UK is between age 11 and 18. So, um, I think at this point I was planning, I was about to turn 16. Um, I wanted to throw this party for my friends. I was handing out invitations and I, this wave of anxiety just came over me. Um, and it's the first time I can remember having that real physical response to anxiety. My body froze. Um, my head was doing this weird twitching thing and I, it felt like it was locking and I couldn't move it around. And my friends were like, are you okay? And it was just a very, very confusing time. At that point, I didn't know it was anxiety. It just felt very difficult. Um, and 
situations like this happen throughout high school, especially if I had to speak in front of a lot of people um, or if I was in social settings that I felt uncomfortable with. Um, and I think the way I dealt with that a lot of the time was um, I, I did go out and party a lot and I, I got confidence that way, but my inner world was still very anxious and um, unsure of myself. Um, so fast forward after I graduated high school, I went to university in Essex, which is just outside of London in England. And um, you can probably imagine the diversity increased massively. There was people from all over the world, all over the country, um, which was amazing to be immersed with um, just a different perspective, a different type of um, peoples and groups, which was, it was amazing. But the problem was I still didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. I didn't feel like I fit in. Um, and at our university, we had I don't know if they intentionally did this, but we had different um, social nights. And one of them was called Milk It. And it was, it was stereotypically a, a more white night. Um, and then another night was called Vibes. It's stereotypically a more black night. Um, and people would say, oh, you can go to either one. And so, but this was just so confusing to me. I still didn't know where I belonged. I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. Um, and I, the anxiety was, um, it was pretty high. And then so after that, I went to um, Hawaii for my study abroad semester. Um, for my last semester of college, I was studying criminology and American studies. Um, so I was in Hawaii, incredible experience, more incredible people all around me. Um, but I'll just reiterate, it still felt like I didn't really belong anywhere. I wasn't, I, I didn't necessarily um, feel secure in any group of people. So it was still a very confusing, anxious time for me. And this was the first time I actually got involved in yoga. I remember going to a yoga class uh, in one of the Hawaii Loa campuses on the east side of Oahu in the mountains. It was beautiful. I experienced the power of yoga for the first time, but I really wasn't taking it seriously. Um, so it felt good in my body. Um, I would go once a week and it was wonderful. Um, and so I went back to the UK, had this great experience. Uh, graduated with my bachelor's and I went back to Guernsey and moved back in with my parents um, and my brother, my younger brother was there. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just got this degree in criminology and American studies. I kind of wanted to work in um, like youth justice, juvenile justice, but there really wasn't that many jobs for that in Guernsey. Um, and so I went into finance. I worked for a trust company and the first day, I remember this so clearly, the first day I walked in and someone said to me, welcome to the next 40 years of your life. And it terrified me from that moment. I was like, oh my goodness, I don't know if I want to do this. And so, and I would say from that point, I was thinking, um, I don't think this is for me. How, how do I change the course of my life? Like, I don't like where it's going. Um, so I, I stayed there for a year. But throughout that, I was thinking... I need to find what, what is meaningful to me, what's, what gives me purpose in life. And so I started volunteering um, at a, I think it was called the Guernsey Arts Commission. It was a, for a youth group. And I loved it. I loved sitting with the kids and we did artwork and they came from um, difficult backgrounds and it, it, was, it was a really good experience. And so from that, I thought, how can I make this more of my life? How can I get more involved in this? came across the Master of Social Work program, thought, wow, I could probably get back to Hawaii if I do that. Um, and so that's what I did. I registered for the two-year 
MSW program and I went back to Hawaii. My mom came with me. We um, got me settled in. I was pretty motivated to get going um, with the social work program. Uh, the first year was, it was there, was, there was still anxiety there. Don't be wrong. I was still managing a lot of anxiety, um, but I felt like I, I was doing something more meaningful for me. Um, so I, I, was, I felt happy with that. Um, and then fast forward to the second year of my master's, um, I took this, I don't even remember why I was taking the class, but it was a summer class and there was four people in our class um, and one of the other people were Christian. Um, so that was the, it was a two week class. We met every single day, I think. Um, and we didn't, we didn't speak that much then, but uh, after the class finished, it was, we started socializing and from then we've pretty much, like you said, been together every single day since then. But not going to tell a soppy love story, but there's definitely part when I look back at that time, it was a huge shift where he started, I think, to, just to teach me that you don't need to look externally to find like belonging or culture or identity. Like you have to look within and he'll tell you the amount of times he's told me look within. And I, at the beginning, I was like, I am, I'm looking with, there's nothing there. I can't find anything. Um, but the more and more he would say that, um, I would reflect and reflect. And I, I strengthened my ability to look within. Um, and we started doing yoga together. We started an ultimate yogi program. It's like 108 days of yoga every single day, power yoga, yin yoga. Um, and so that, that strengthened my love for yoga. Um, I was still dealing with anxiety. I, I could feel it helping me. I didn't really know why. Um, I would struggle with meditations. I would fall asleep when we were meditating. He would get very upset with that. <laughs> like, what are you doing? We're trying to meditate. And I'd be asleep. But So it was hard for me. But I kept going. I kept going because I felt like it was something that was really, it was helping me. It was helping us together. Our bodies were changing. Um, we were going through the social work program. Um, we graduated, um, continued doing yoga, had our children, um, still continued doing yoga. It was amazing postpartum as well. Um, and then, so it got to the point with the pandemic, I had been in social work. I graduated from 2016. So I've been in social work for a while. I dabbled in school, social work. Um, in juvenile justice, in domestic violence, sexual assault. I was working in medical social work. Um, and I something came to me that I realized I really wanted to take yoga further. So I, it was the pandemic, and I can't remember how I found it, but I found a scholarship um, for a certified yoga teacher program. So I jumped on it, and I went through it. And that was the moment, I think, that I realized... I understand why yoga is helping me so much with anxiety. Um, I started learning about the nervous system. I started learning about um, our intentional breath work and why that is helpful, especially for anxiety. And so I went through that program. And when I came out of it, I had this huge energy for, I want to share this with everybody. This is amazing. So I started incorporating it a lot in my own um, therapy in, in the work I was doing with my clients. Um, and so ever since then, I've just been trying to incorporate breath work and talk about the nervous system and um, encourage yoga practice and um, meditation with all my clients. And it's really benefited a lot of people. Um, 
And so that's when I started thinking, I want to, I want to take this even further. And so that's where Living Irie came in. And that's where, um, I guess Christian will probably have questions about that, but that is really where I started to culminate. Okay. I had this anxiety. I found ways to manage it, to still thrive in my life. I, I, I still have anxiety. It didn't just disappear, but I found ways to be able to manage it and work with it. Um, and so I, I created Living Irie. Um, it's been evolving ever since. Um, and, and right now it's, it's very much looking at traditional yogic philosophies um, and practices and combining it with more clinical practices um, just to optimize people's health and well-being. So that's just a little bit of context about where I came from and where I'm at now. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I even heard a story in there that I'd never heard before. Mm-hmm. Um, unfolding the multi-layers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to circle back a little bit, um, you know, as you were talking about anxiety and you were talking about, you know, looking within. It's something I still have to tell myself every day. Um, but, you know, as I was preparing for this podcast this morning, I was kind of like meditating, thinking about what I wanted to do and what anxieties I had and trying to relieve myself of, of them before. And one of the things that came to me was like, you know, just be yourself. You know, you're always, when you have anxiety about, when I have anxiety about um, what other people think or I worry about it or, or whatever, then I'm at, I'm not at my best. I'm at my best when I just be myself uh, under all circumstances. And, you know, I was thinking about that as, as you were talking earlier, as we were talking earlier, and the guy in the chat called me a Wookiee in a beach house leading yoga, dissing me. And at first I was like, all this anxiety went up in me, and I was like, oh, everyone's going to be laughing at me, you know, taking me back to childhood or something. Um, and then, like, just a moment of peace hit me and just a revelation came. Remember what you decided to do before you came in here? Just be yourself and be, be happy with that. And so I don't know if anybody heard it, but I, own, I tried to own it in, in my own introduction of myself. Um, and so I was just wondering, you could talk more about that, like looking inward, like what did you find? How did you find it? You said you didn't find anything. And I think when, you know, if you would have asked me that a long time ago, I would have said the same thing. I was like, what do you mean? Like, I, I don't, it's not registering for me. I don't know how to do that. I don't see anything. I don't feel anything. Um, but I, I would also think that it could connect back to like my early childhood. And I think that I did have that feeling as a child and somehow like the world weathered that away. Um, and so it's just like kind of reclaiming a voice that was already there or a consciousness or, or whatever you want to call it. So I just wonder if you could talk about that, like your journey. How did you come from being able to see and feel nothing inside when you looked inwards to, to where you're at now and you can utilize it as a skill, as a, as a tool for your life and for your therapy? Yeah. Yeah. And I think initially it was something that was really uncomfortable because I couldn't find anything that I wanted to find like google how how to how to feel something or how to know who i am or what i wanted to do but the more and more i think i sat with myself and peeled the layers um off the more and more i saw that i'm constantly evolving so i don't need to know exactly who i am um i need to be trust the process of that evolution um and i i think becoming a mom had a lot to do with that I think when you're growing these humans inside, you become very connected to your body. Um, and then having that connection with them, they, they're a mirror. They, they teach us so much about ourselves. So I think that's also helped me 
look within more and um, have more confidence in I don't really need to know exactly who I am right now I don't I honestly don't right it's a constant evolution but I'm I'm much more secure and happy with um, letting that attachment go having that non-attachment um, knowing that evolution is inevitable and is what I want I want to constantly grow and change um, and then also bringing it back to yoga I think practicing yoga and practicing breath work and learning why those things work. Um, it helped me to just drop into a deeper sense of um, security and calmness within myself. Again, not knowing the answers. I still don't know the answers to that question. It's still a hard question to answer when you say, what do you find when you look within? But I think I'm just more comfortable with, it's okay. I'm, I'm here. I'm present. I'm living life. I um, have a beautiful family and I'm constantly evolving. And so trusting that, that process. Yeah. And I think that the, you make a good point when you say that it's a hard question to answer. And, and from my perspective, the reason why it's a hard question to answer is because I think oftentimes in these situations, we're looking for like a blueprint or a how to guide and there is no blueprint or how to guide. It would be uh, completely up to yourself to look inward and figure out your own path, which just by looking, you know, you make the first step into discovering the path, but how Alicia did it or how I did it or how Kim did it or how anybody does it, it's going to be different for every, you know, for every individual. But that first step is to look. Um, so one thing that I, uh, another quick little story that has, you know, really um, elevated you in my, in my eyes um, was when, we were when you were pregnant with our first child, Zaid, and you went through. I can't even remember the name of it. The was the meditation thing called that you did the breathing, hypnobirthing. Hypnobirthing, yeah. And so, you know, I, I look back and I'm kind of ashamed of it because we used to go to these classes and it was just like a lot of introductory meditation stuff. And so I was bored with it, but I didn't take it seriously at, at all at first, you know. And I'd sit in the back and just kind of casually pay attention and whatever. But Alicia took it super seriously. And she hit some, we hit some real challenges um, that we didn't in, foresee during the pregnancy. Alicia had fallen at uh, close to the due date a couple of weeks before, and it led to high blood pressure. And a uh, chain of events, one thing led to another. It was just not quite the experience that we hoped it would be with the first child. Um, but Alicia was like, um, I don't know how to say. She was, uh, she was zen, but in a, not in a like, you know, not like she gave birth in just like complete peace. I'm not saying that. But she was then in that she was able to, like, bring her mind back every time, you know, things started to struggle for her or, or whatever. And she was also able to, to call me back. I was extremely tired. I'd been up for a couple of days. I was anxious, didn't sleep for a few days. And I was exhausted uh, trying to help her. But she had so much strength. And it seemed to me that, you know, it all came, you know, staying looking within, you know, the lungs are right there in the center, our breath, you know, that keeps us alive. And it seemed to me it was the breath whatever you were doing with the breath at that time that, um, you know, that helped guide you and bring you back and help bring me back uh, so many times and get us through that, those times. So I was wondering if you could share that story from your perspective a little bit and, you know, maybe, you know, add some insight that might help other future mothers or anybody dealing with, with that situation. Yeah. It's so interesting looking back on that time. We, the class that Christian's talking about, we went to a hypnobirthing class. It was, it was after work once a week and it was like a two or three hour class. It was, it was long. And so, yeah, it was kind of dragging Christian along to that because I knew we both knew we wanted to have a, a natural as possible birth. 
um, and I wanted um, some skills. And we heard about hypnobirthing through a friend. So we signed up and it was great. They were teaching us. I think that really the key part of it is they were teaching us exactly what would happen in birth and what, what's happening in the pregnancy. So not just like the like woo-woo, if you want to say that. It was very much like this is scientifically exactly what's happening. This is where the baby is in the birth canal. This is where the baby's going to go. Um, this is why what your partner does is going to help. So that really helped me. As you can see, I, really, I love to know the why behind it. That's, that's how it works in my brain. Um, but it taught me the breath work. It taught me a lot of breath work and meditation. So I think a key one that Christian noticed was um, the breathing through the waves or the contractions. Um, and they told us to visualize something that was calming. And the most calming thing to me, it just popped in my head was um, one of our favorite beaches in Oahu, Nanakuli. And the waves come, they come really high up the shore. They're pretty powerful. Um, and then they go back down. And so through every contraction or wave, I would um, inhale and picture the waves coming up, exhale and picture the waves going down. And I, I did not leave that. I was in that mode the whole time. Um, but to back up a little bit, I did fall at work. I was working. Um, I was helping kids get their community service done. We went shoveling and I slipped out of the car. It was very embarrassing. I was going to pick up a kid from their house, opened the door and just slipped. Um, I fell on my bottom and um, hurt my back. And so when we went to the midwife, they noticed that my blood pressure had gone up really high. Um, they did a stress test, which if you've ever had one of those, it's the most nerve wracking thing ever. And they couldn't, our son's aid wasn't moving. Um, and it was just a, a terrifying moment. And so she said, we, we need to we need to induce you and we need to go forth with the pregnancy. And this was, I think, th 37 and a half weeks, I think it was. Um, and so going through my mind was, oh, my goodness, we've just gone through this hypnobirthing class and they want to induce me. So they want to use Pitocin. They want to give me extremely strong and painful contractions. How am I going to do this? Um, but Christian was so supportive and, and we, we were very strong and it's OK. Like we, we know that I can do this. We know that we can do this as a team. Um, so we just went forth. I had the Pitocin. Um, we had a very strong birth plan. We used all the breath work. Um, Christian was absolutely exhausted. I was in the zone. And so I was just going. I was just breathing, visualizing, breathing, visualizing. Um, Christian would kind of fall asleep or go to the bathroom. And I can't remember. We had like a code word. I think I said pressure. And he would come and push on the pressure points. Um, and I would just breathe through it. And so we went all the way through that until until Zaid was born. And there's a very specific birth um, breathing technique called J breathing. Um, something you can use if you go to the bathroom, it's the same um, movement, but it, these things, they scientifically have a lot of backing to them. And so it made sense in my mind. So I really trusted it and believed in it. And, and that's how I, I birthed him out with the Pitocin um, without any pain medication or epidurals, anything like that. Um, I was just very much in the zone, so. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And I really like the, you really gave me a vivid experience when you talked about Nanakuli Beach. If any of you mm -hmm. ever go to Oahu, it's over there on on the west side towards Waianae. Uh, and if you do ever go, there, be respectful. It's the native Hawaiian side. But um, just this, I thought, what an amazing, you like you took me there and I could hear the water, the the waves coming all the way up and I could hear them going back down. And, you know, there's almost like a feeling, like a feeling of gravity there too. And I could just feel it. And what an amazing thing. 
what an amazing tool to have. If you could take yourself to Nanakuli Beach or whatever, you know, wherever is your place, especially that has such ambience with sound and feeling and smells even, um, you know, then you can handle anything, right? You could go there. Um, it's like go to your happy place. Um, all right. Well, I was, I want to talk more about revolutionary yoga and, um, let's see, I have a question written for you. Um, just a second. Yeah. So there's a guy named John Africa that Alicia and I are familiar with. He died a long time ago, but he was part of this group called the move organization, like this revolutionary group in Philadelphia back in the days. And I think they're kind of still around, but anyways, you know, he would always talk about revolution. Like he said, people misunderstand what revolution means. And he's like, he talks a lot about how, you know, we need revolution every moment in our lives. You know, if our lungs didn't continuously revolutionize, we would die. Our heart didn't continue to revolutionize. And I think, you know, and you can see this in social work and, and other areas, even in our personal lives, education, everything. But sometimes when we get stagnant and we take for granted and keep continue to do things the same way, you know, we gather moss and we're not revolutionizing what we're doing. And so we're not keeping up and continuously changing in order to, you know, meet with our times, with how individuals are changing, how the world's changing. And so he said, um, he also added that revolution is not a word, but an application. It's not war. But peace, it does not weaken, but it strengthens. It strengthens. Revolution does not cause separation. It generates togetherness. So I was wondering, you know, you call it revolutionary yoga. What, what makes it revolutionary? What's different than, or what, I shouldn't say different, but, you know, what makes it revolutionary for you? Why do you use that word? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yoga's, it's been around for centuries, right? This is not a new practice um, that I'm creating, nothing like that. The reason I say revolutionary, revolution, revolutionizing something is making a radical shift. Very much like John Africa was saying, you're, you're impacting how people um, think, behave and interact with themselves in the world. So the reason I say revolutionary yoga is because I really want to empower people to realize that one, when we have emotions, thoughts, we have to move them. If we keep them stagnant or stuck, they become very heavy and we get a lot of um, mental health challenges. We have to move them through some sort of medium, whether that is breathing, whether that is dancing, whether that is um, boxing or running, we have to move them through some sort of practice. And yoga is such a powerful way to do that. Um, but two, using yoga to revolutionize the way that you think and revolutionize the way that you go about your life. Um, I want to empower people to take control over that and to realize that they can do it themselves. Um, so the programs I'm creating are very much empowering you to learn how to do that, why to do that, and then practice that, build a habit, and then you can, you can do that for the rest of your lives. Because um, what I've seen with, with a lot of clients doing therapy is people get stuck with talk therapy, people can get very stuck. Um, with cognitive behavioral therapy, such a powerful tool, I use it every single, in every single one of my sessions, even if people don't realize I'm using it, um, talking about how we're connecting the thoughts, the feelings and the behaviors. Um, so it's, it's all well and good to, to say that and to go through that and to think, okay, if I change what I'm thinking, I can change how I'm feeling, change how I'm behaving. But what about the physical body? What about the physical sensations that come up with that thought? What if I'm saying, I can't do this, I'm so scared. There's a physical response that comes with that. Our nervous system, um, our sympathetic nervous system can become super overactive in that. So we can, we can talk through this and we can shift the thoughts, but I want people to be able to revolutionize the way that they process those emotions um, and they put that into, into motion with yoga, with breath work, 
And so when I say revolutionary, it's revolutionary for yourself. It's revolutionizing your mind, revolutionizing your behaviors, and revolutionizing your life. Well, that's a very powerful answer. Um, I wanted to push you further on that and ask, you know, you, the intersection of yoga and therapy, how do you uh, see yourself, um, how do you see yourself utilizing yoga or connecting it or interweaving it into your therapy practice? Um, starting now, you know, just like where you, where you work at an agency right now or, or whatnot, how can you use it there? But then what do you visualize for the future? Like if you were to, not if, but you're growing um, this program, when it's at its uh, apex, you know, what do you want that to look like? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, working at an agency right now, there's limitations. There is. But I, I use a lot, especially breath work, because it's something that um, I can teach very easily within the limitations of the agency. Um, and so I found that pushes people past that stagnant point when I start teaching them some breath work um, and some basic yoga asana to help release stress um, and emotions. But I've also, I've talked about it so much in my agency that they're now um, giving me a group to run, which is going to be a, a mindful movement group where we're using movement to process emotions. Um, so that's how I use it in the agency. For myself, I want to create more programs, um, and I am creating more programs. One, an intentional breathwork program where I, I will teach the, the science behind the breathwork, how you regulate the nervous system with breathwork, and create um practices for people to build that habit. Two, there's a, a program coming up uh, called Revolution. Again, it's revolutionizing the way you think, revolutionizing the way you behave and live your life. And so this will be a, um, uh, you will follow online classes, which are very intentionally, the flows are intentionally set up for different things to uh, be curious about your mind and body, to um, strengthen things, to calm. So they're intentionally set up that way. Um, and then you follow, again, a breathwork routine um, and overall lifestyle shifts to make that radical change in your mental health and your physical health and your just overall holistic health. Going a step further, hopefully next year, the beginning of next year, there will be a cohort part of that. So people will follow along um, with the online part and then we'll meet in person once a week for a, a very intimate um, experience um for a few hours we'll practice yoga together we will practice this reflection together um and just strengthen community the community bond but also that um that bond with yourself that you're creating throughout the week so that's how i see it growing personally but i think agency wise the more and more we talk about this and the more and more i've i've explained to people why it works and i've done presentations on practice this and then this i'm going to tell you the science behind it and then people are like oh wow well, I can just do that. I can do that before I go to work in the morning. Um, and so people are understanding now, this is, not, this is not necessarily what they thought. This is a very powerful tool that needs to be in mental health. We have to, we have to bring this powerful tool to mental health just to optimize people's treatment and healing. Yeah, that's, it's a revolutionary act to do something different like that and bring it mm -hmm. in. Like I said, you know, in social work, sometimes we get stagnant and, you know, it's like gathering moss. Um, Rolling Stone, don't gather no moss. Rolling Stone is <laughs> revolutionary. Um, so now are you ready for, I got a critical social worker question for you. You ready for mm -hmm. that? So I am. You, rem you remember um, back when we were on Oahu and I was putting together a, a thing for my class that I was teaching adjunct at HPU and we would have a class every semester at the beach. And we were kind of advertising it when one of the classes that other people could come. And so um one of the students put it on Facebook 
and shared what it was about. And we really got attacked for um, saying that we were, because we put that we were going to talk about yoga and breathing and things like that in our circle. And they said that we didn't have a, a right to talk about things like that, um, culturally appropriating. And while I think that was much misguided in that situation, we were just literally going to talk about it in a circle, um, no practice or anything in that situation. However, it does, you know, you should never, in my opinion, even when we feel like we're not doing something wrong, when somebody brings something up, it, I think it's begging us to take a look inward and make sure that we're where we need to be at. And so I was just curious where you're at on yoga, and you know a lot more about it than me. And I hear, you know, some African people talking about yoga, that it, that it also comes from the continent of Africa, like I hear um, Kabaka Pyramid say that, John 9 says that, mm -hmm. but I don't know that uh, as a fact for myself. And so I'm just curious, have you thought about that and like, you know, you utilizing it here in Alaska, it comes from somewhere far away from a long time ago. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a great question. Like you say, um, even if sometimes it can be misguided, it, we have to reflect on it. It's really important. And I think it brings up the point of respecting these practices that have been around for centuries and really understanding why you're using them. And so, yeah, there is an African background, um, I think more in Kemetic yoga. Um, and then the training I went through um, was through if you go back through the lineage with um, Iyengar. And so it was a different, a different route. But I think back to the point we made before of creating your own culture and evolving that way. I think there's nothing wrong with, with, with respectfully um, learning from all of these different practices and bringing them together and providing them to the world to experience. They're there for us to to optimize how we're living and optimize our health and um, really get to know ourselves in the world. And so why would, why would we not want to incorporate that into our lives? Um, so yeah, I think it's, we should always be very respectful and um, really know where we're coming from, but also embrace that we can pull from different practices and different cultures um, and create something that's, that's very beneficial to the world. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate your answer. Uh, I just want to take a quick moment. I see um, our brother MT and our sister, I believe that's Cache in the, in the chat. Long Hello. So appreciate you coming. Maybe you can uh, come on and talk in just a minute. But Cache will be a future guest in, I'm not sure when, in a few weeks, maybe a month or so. And uh, I'm hoping I can bring MT and we can dig further on this subject, you know, yoga in Africa and things like that, going back to some, some different roots than many of us are aware of. Um, with that being said, I was wondering, can you, can you teach anybody a little bit of the revolutionary yoga? Can you lead us in a little practice or something? Yeah, sure. So I, um, I'm very, I don't miss my morning practice during the week. Um, Christian knows I have to get that in before work or I find it very hard to get through the day. Um, so one thing I do is called alternate nostril breathing. Um, and this is really good for activating the, the vagus nerve, um, part of our parasympathetic nervous system. So that's the side that's responsible for our rest, our digest, our relaxation, our calming. So we're lowering our blood pressure, lowering our heart rate, slowing our breathing, um, and allowing for very important functions to happen. This one also, we're going to go from one nostril to the other. It can be confusing at first, but stay with me. Um, and so we're, we're connecting both hemispheres of the brain. Um, and so we're, we're aiming to bring that back to the prefrontal cortex, which is our thinking part of the brain. Um, so keep that in mind as we're doing it. 
So we're going to use our right thumb is going to be on our right nostril. And then our right ring finger is going to be on our left nostril. And I like to rest the other two fingers on here on the top of my head. So you're going to exhale. And then on your next inhale, open your left nostril and breathe in. Close your left nostril and breathe out your right. Now breathe in your right. Close and breathe out your left. Inhale through your left. Close, open your right and exhale your right. Inhale your right. Close and exhale your left. Inhale your left. Close, open, and exhale through your right. Inhale through your right. Close and exhale through your left. One more round. Inhale through your left. Close and exhale through your right. Inhale through your right. Close and exhale through your left. Now release both nostrils. Breathe in through both nostrils. And a really long exhale through your mouth. And so hopefully you felt the calming effect of that. It's very clarifying as well. That's why I do it before I go to work in the morning. It really clears my mind. Um, and it just prepares me for a new day. Start a new day. Go forth in a calming way. So hopefully you enjoyed that. And I, I um, recommend people do that five rounds of that daily. It's really helpful. Yeah. One more question. And then I want to turn it over to Kim. Um, so how does, what does that do for us? Can you ex explain more? What is the exercise that we just did? What exactly does it do for us? How does it affect? I know your uh, favorite vocabulary where the parasympathetic nervous system. Can you talk about that? I'm glad you know that now. Yeah. So it's, we have our nervous system, right? And we have our sympathetic nervous system. Um, this is what you hear, the fight, flight, or freeze response. Um, so if that becomes very overactive, our heart rate is constantly high. Our blood pressure is high. Our breathing is probably shallow and rapid. Um, it wreaks havoc in our body. It's responsible for a lot of cardiovascular disease, um, obesity, um, what else? Migraines, headaches, a lot of, a lot of physical health problems are um, partly due to our sympathetic nervous system being overactive. So we have to find a way to trigger us to the parasympathetic nervous system. And the best way to do that is activating the vagus nerve. It's the second largest nerve in our bodies, second only to the spinal cord itself. So when we activate that, it sends a message to our brain, activate the parasympathetic nervous system. And then this is where um, our blood pressure goes down, our heart rate goes down, our brain clears, our breathing slows, and our physical body calms. It opens us up for digestion. Um, it opens us up uh, for increased immunity. Um, uh, what else? So many other things. Just that calming relaxation and that clear mind. Hopefully you felt that while you were doing it. Yeah, thank you for that. Well, I want to turn it over to Kim for a little bit.
for sharing all of that with us. Um, I think it's very inspirational for for young women that are at the start of their career or planning to have a, a family in the future. And on that topic, um, what are some strategies or techniques that you have implemented to effectively balance the, your responsibilities as a mother, but then also your professional career? And how has that contributed to um, your success in both of those areas? Yeah, and that's it's a daily challenge. And it's something I, I struggle with guilt a lot about. Um, I struggle knowing that I am going to work for a large part of the day, the work day, um, and that I'm not with my kids. And so I, I, every day I struggle with the guilt of that. Um, but I try and be really intentional about the time that I am with them on the weekends, um, in the evenings, in the morning, if they're awake, I try and be really intentional about that and present. It's hard. I'm not, I'm not perfect at it at all, but it's really trying to be intentional. Um, and another thing is that morning practice. If I don't get that morning practice in um, before work, I really struggle with the rest of the day. So it's, I was just thinking on Friday, I didn't sleep well Thursday night. I had a really, really busy Friday. I was packed back to back with clients and I had other things going on. And I woke up with this super heavy feeling that I just, I, I was anxious. I was overwhelmed. Like, how am I going to do this? Why do I have so many things to do today? Um, but I dragged myself out of bed, got on my mat. And I, I knew what I had to do. I had to process through those emotions. And so I did, uh, I think I did like a 20 minute yoga practice. I did, um, my breath work. I tend to do a gratitude prayer every morning too. Um, after I do my yoga practice and it just really helps me just to reset. So I think that part, having that every single day helps me manage all the things going on. But again, nowhere near perfect and constantly trying to grow in that aspect, um, but yeah, so really that practice being intentional and trying to process through the guilt that I have for for having my wonderful kids and, and working alongside that. All right. Well, should we take some, see if we have any questions from the audience? Um, you all are welcome to um, ask questions through the chat or you can queue up in the call in and we'll take your calls. Um, yeah, so let's see what we got MT here. Take him. So MT, we've had problems with this before. So if you can't hear me, know that you're going live now. Beautiful. I think I got it. Can I get a thumbs up if you can hear me? I can hear you. Uh, awesome. All praise to the most high sis. I just want to say one, thank you for that breakdown. Like, it's so, like, difficult, I think, to articulate simply and concisely how breathwork functions in the biological system and how it affects and influences our emotions and our mental state. That was beautiful. So I say thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, one of my questions is, you know, like, taking in the practicality and the normalcy of it, you know, like, we, as practitioners, we... We practice it every day. And so we understand it to be a natural part of our life. But a lot of our clients, a lot of the people around us, they find it to be some daunting task. How do you take, like, this breathwork practice, this yoga practice, this, like, power hour in the morning? How do you make that more 
normalized in a society that says that you're supposed to like check your emails before you know you check on your children how do we normalize that and how do we make it a succinct practice that's like beneficial for everyone without them going into these other practices that have like very specific you know results you know thanks by the way that's awesome yeah, such a good question, because it does feel daunting. Um, I think the, the first thing that I teach people is if you can just extend your exhale, make it longer than your inhale, um, you're activating the vagus nerve. So I ask, that's the first thing I ask people when they leave my office is I want you to practice this. I want you to do three rounds of this um, just once a day. I just want you to extend your exhale. And people come back and they're like, wow. Like it really helped. I, I was able to calm. I was able to get through this meeting. I was able to do this. And so once people practice that and then you just build and build. Um, so, yeah, I think making it real simple at first and just doing something that's just extend your exhale. People feel it. But um, second thing, I think that's where I really want to create this intention program. Um, it's coming soon. And it is building that habit, right? It takes about 21 to 30 days to build a habit. And so providing people with very clear instructions of try this first and then try this and then let's add this, um, creating a calendar for people to follow, I think really helps as well. Um, but yeah, it, it's a daunting task. It is. And it, it once you know why it's working, I also think that helps. So that's a, another part of the program is the why. Yeah, thanks for that answer. And thanks, MT, for the question. Um, you know, I heard MT say, I don't remember exactly how he said it, but, you know, basically the idea of waking up and going to your phone or you're checking your emails before checking on your kids or looking at your kids. And, you know, I've been through a lot of problems in my life, addiction and other things back in the days. But, you know, today in 2023, on this day, I'm addicted to my cell phone and I'm addicted to my email. And, you know, I'm not necessarily addicted to social media in a way that I was when it first came out. But, you know, I still like just even to advertise for the podcast and whatnot, you know, like um, I'm on there. And so like, I want to see results and I want to know, you know, like I want to know if Kim e emailed me about class and, and needs help or something like that. And I can't let it go sometimes. Um, I, actually, I shouldn't say that I can't let it go, but sometimes it gets in the way and I don't recognize what I need or what my family needs. And, you know, I will go to the phone and go, you know, and go straight somewhere else where I don't have to be around anyone. And I'm going through my emails and, you know, and so I just want to, you know, make that point that like, that's not a good thing, you know, if we're, and I'll just say, speak for myself, but if I'm, if I'm going from my phone and ignoring my children, and sometimes I'll notice, you know, my children are like, daddy, 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 and I'm answering, and it's an important email. It's not like I'm, you know, commenting on so-and-so's Facebook about some, something, a picture or some drama. I'm answering an important email, but I'm not even looking at them and I'm shrugging them off, you know, but, and if I look into their eyes, you know, there's a light there and I can't get away from that. But if you don't look at, if you don't see their eyes, you know, if you, if you don't even look and same thing, like, you know, living in a house like this, you can get to the point where you're so busy and consumed with all the other stuff that you have to worry about that you forget what's right behind you. And you forget that, you know, there could be a whale swimming out there or just simply the sunshine shining or simply, you know, the trees and the feeling out, out there. Um, and so I was just wondering if you could touch on that at all. Like, how do you, you know, because I know you've had your problems with the phone and whatnot, mm -hmm. too. And you've, you know, deleted your Instagram and brought it back a couple of times, just like probably everyone in the world. Um, but, you know, how do you feel about it now? And how do you how do you make that balance? And how can 
the you talk you were talking about um what did you say uh creating a habit making patterns right 21 is that we said 21 days so like how do you how can we this is where i'm looking for some real advice how can we you know utilize you know these maybe not directly revolutionary yoga but maybe how can we utilize that to create a better habit than going and being consumed by something like our phone or social media or whatever it is that you do on there. You know, we can't even go watch any video of any concert or any last second shot at a game or something. And nobody, almost nobody is actually watching it. Everybody is watching it through their phone. Um, and so we're not experiencing life as it, as we should in the present moment at times. And so what tools can you help us to, to get past that and create, you know, maybe more authentic and, um, habits that actually serve us. Yeah. And social media has made that really hard. Like you said, I've, I deleted my Instagram so many times. I don't have a personal Instagram anymore because it takes away from, I, I just make this weird shift in my mind where I become, I'm thinking about it. And I'm like, why am I thinking about what I should post on this Instagram? Why am I not present in my life? So I just made an intentional decision to not have a personal Instagram. Um, and that's really helped. So that's one way, but it's not for everybody. Um, I think also having somebody else go through that with you, like we're very, we're like a mirror for each other now, right? Like if you see me doing it, I'm more caught up in it and you catch me and same for you, I can see it and it looks absurd and I catch you, but when we're in it, we don't, we don't feel that so much. So having that, um, that mirror, I think um, really helps. But other habits, just making small changes, really making small changes. For example, like if it's social media, having, telling yourself, okay, I'm going to, I'm just not going to check it until the, the evening or I'm only going to check it on my lunch break. Um, just making small intentional decisions throughout your day. We have to be intentional and we have to make a choice and don't go all crazy and do everything in one day. Make small intentional choices um, and it will build a habit. But I get, this is another one that there's, it's just, it's not like a clear answer to it. It's different for everybody. Um, there's no blueprint for it. It's, you have to learn that presence. Um, yoga helps with that. It does. It helps to, to build that present moment awareness and, and being comfortable in that and not having to turn to our phone. And I think one more point I'll make on that is a lot of the times these things are escapism from the present moment right and so we also have to look at why are we why are we escaping why are we not trying to be present here um so that's just a larger question to ask yourself yeah i appreciate that well i thought um do we have any more questions anybody else have a question or want to call in and chat you can you don't have to have a question you can call in and talk to us about something if you have anything in mind Anything else from uh, either of you, Alicia or Kim, that you wanted to talk about or ask? No, I appreciate it. I guess one thing I wanted to, um, I think because mo both Kim and I are from different countries, right? And so I, I haven't practiced social work that much, definitely not therapy in the UK. But I, I can see that there are a lot of differences. And I guess, I don't know, if, Kim, if you had any um thing that you've noticed that's different in America with social work? Um, it's a good question. Um, I've only really been exposed to a lot of social work practice in the U.S., mm. funny enough. Um, but just when it comes to talking about 
mental health and going to therapy or asking for help, I think here in the U.S., the conversation around mental health is a lot more open than what it is in Switzerland. I think there's a lot more shame and privacy when it comes to mental health in Switzerland. So I think the U.S. is actually has currently has a better approach to mental health and openly having discussions and conversations about um, practices that we can do at home or going to therapy and seeking the help that we um, that we need. So I think that's one of the the biggest differences I have noticed. That's really interesting. That's a good point. Yeah, it's become more and more. We talk about it so much more, so much more. And I, I think when I'm I'm seeing my younger clients talk about it, they talk about it so openly with their friends mm-hmm. compared to when I was younger. You didn't really talk about that at all. And no one talked to me about anxiety when I was younger. Yeah, we got a question from Manny. Manny asks, how can people with anxiety disorders manage their symptoms in social situations and what are some effective coping strategies? Yeah, and that's something that that affects me too, is being in different social situations. I can feel my anxiety going up. And um, I, I, re- I genuinely, I'm not just saying this, I genuinely do use the breathing before I go into those social situations. And when I'm in them, um, I use that extended exhale breathing because it's the one that's just the least obvious. So nobody really knows I'm doing it. Um, that's how I manage it myself. Um, generally, um, with social anxiety, it's getting to the the root of where did those things come from? And so oftentimes when you track back to childhood or to some other experience that's happened in your life, there's something that is becoming triggered in that social situation that came from a past experience or a past um, event so it's tracking back that and you can do that self self reflection and um, thinking through that but also through therapy it is um, definitely helpful to look at those root causes Um, and it's something that I think adding yoga to that is once you've really accessed the root cause is then to move it and you can move it through intentional flows and poses I hope that helps but in the moment I definitely use breath work yeah, thanks. Anybody else with a question? Anybody else want to call in? We still have a little bit of time. Pache says, Switzerland is also a country that has created a place that you don't have to escape from all the time. We talk about it here, but continue to get systematic, systemically worse. Yeah, and that's a good point, right? Why are we escaping? Why do we have this high anxiety? And with with social media and the way that this society is set up right now and the the responsibilities and um, just the hecticness that especially we're putting on our youth today, it's creating a lot of mental health challenges. Um, and so you're right, like the way that we have, that we're, we're living in this society is hard and we have to, that's why we have to take control of our own health a lot of the times. We have to make those choices to better ourselves so that we can unfortunately manage our life in this very hectic um, and difficult, challenging society. All right. We got a bunch of callers queued up for you, Alicia. So mm-hmm. just a okay. second here. We got Deb. Deb, you're about to go live now. Hi, Deb. Your mic's off, Deb. Hello. Hello. We can hear you now. Hello. 
Okay, great. Thank you so much. This is, uh, I've got so many things swirling in my head about all this. Um, so, uh, one of the things when we were talking about, um, um, you know, having to be aware of where you are or what you're doing in the moment, um, I work with um, substance abuse clients and or substance use disorder clients, and um, a lot of times they don't seem to have any awareness of what's going on with, like, when you talked about looking inward, they really, it's too, it's been too scary for them to look inward because of the trauma. And um, so when I have groups and I do breathing exercises like this, and I find it very, very helpful. But that's not really what I wanted to say. I'm having a hard time coming um, across as uh, uh, what I want to say. Um, there were a couple things. Um, the uh, cell phones and distractions that we have I, take us away from our uh, present moment because to be in the present moment is... Um, <clears throat> I, I feel like it's more uncomfortable. If we have something to distract us from our present moment, we can think about what could be or, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm probably not making any sense, but I really appreciate uh, you, Alicia and Christian. Um, I love, I love this class and uh, that this is uh, related to. And uh, thank you. I'm going to get off. Let somebody else say. Hey, thanks, Deb. Deb, she made a really good point about uh, with with substance use, right? And in these groups, so a lot of the times people are turning to substance because there is this huge discomfort and pain and trauma that is not so easy to just stop and look within and be present. Um, and so just thinking the thing that came to mind is along with that breath work is you can help people just by having people stand up and just forward fold and just release some tension just in a, it's another way to activate that parasympathetic nervous system. Your head's below your heart. You can do it sitting down as well um, and just lying on your thighs. But that's another one. If people didn't want to do breath work is just to forward fold and release that. And you can teach people that this is really, it's soothing for you. If you're feeling stressed, it's really soothing to just get up and forward fold. Um, yeah. So thank you, Deb. Yeah, thanks. Good to hear from you, Deb. Um, sorry if I get the pronunciation of the name right, but we have Shar or Shardal next. You're going live now. Um, so, Alicia, I have three questions for you. So, uh, the first question is, what are the pros and cons of doing yoga? So, the pros and... The you say the pros and cons? Like, what are the advantages and disadvantages of doing yoga? Yeah, I would say that there's there's so many benefits to it. I'll start with um, cons. I would say if you don't, if you don't, um, it can seem overwhelming, right? If you don't have someone kind of leading you, or you don't have that um, experience of of going to classes or understanding the flows, it can be really overwhelming. Um, 
and so it's something that I think if you if you make a choice, I'm like, I want to do yoga. I think it's really important to to start going to classes or to start going on YouTube as well. There's so many videos. Um, talk, start talking to somebody that can help you with those flows to make it not so overwhelming. So it can be kind of hard to get into it. That that could be a con. But once you know that just doing a forward fold and breathing, you're doing yoga. You you are. Um, so I would say that could be a con. Um, pros the benefits of it it's just massive you're you're regulating your nervous system every time you go through these flows you're learning how you you go into really intense flows some of the times and you're you're holding them and you have to learn how to be present in that moment with the pain and the discomfort if you want to call it that right there's discomfort in there and you have to learn how to use your breath to stay in that pose how to use your body to stay calm you kind of want to go into that fight or flight but you have to really calm and stay in it So once you learn that through yoga, you then implement that in your life. And so that's why practicing it daily, it's a daily reminder. And then you go through your life, you go through a challenging moment. You can remember, I was in so much discomfort during that class or during that flow, but I made it through. How did I make it through? And you implement those things into your life. So that's a huge pro. The things you do on the mat, you take forth into your life. Yeah, thanks, Alicia. And thanks for the question. Um, we have any more? Any more questions? Anyone? Will we wrap it up. We did the color queue was long and it went down. Okay, here's MT again. Um, whoops. Hold on, MT. We we uh, accidentally cut you. Can you call back? I think Shardal had a second question. Oh, Shardal did. I will go back. Sorry, the thing keeps glitching on the yeah calls. Um, you there? True meaning behind yoga, and how often should you do it as part of your daily practice? Um. With yoga, I think there's there's so many different meanings behind it. With with your daily practice, I, every day is is very beneficial. And throughout the day, when we think of yoga, we don't have to think of we have to go to the 60-minute class. That's kind of what I want to change the perception of. You can do yoga. You can do 20 minutes in the morning. You can go through your day. You can use breath work through your day. You can practice these forward folds. I do that um, quite frequently between clients just to release the tension. I'm taking on so much of um, other people's um, emotions and traumas. And so to release that tension, I do that throughout the day. Um, And you can do it before bed as well. Um, So I think if you can incorporate some form of yoga every day, it will really benefit your life. Um, With the meaning of yoga, I think that that's another really hard question to answer. I think there's there's so much that it can do for your mental, physical, spiritual health. Um, it creates so much more suppleness in your body. It's preventing a lot of injuries and is just creating a very strong vessel for you to go through this world in. Um, so I hope that answers the question. I guess I don't really have a, a solid answer for the meaning of yoga, but there's, there's so many benefits to it. There's so many meanings behind it. And I really encourage people to explore that for themselves. Would you say that maybe the meaning of yoga is just life? Yeah. To yeah. Right. Our breath is our life force, right? So. Yeah. All right. Let's get MT in here real quick for another call. question. 
You there, MT? Yes, sir. Everyone can hear me? Yeah. Wonderful. Um, that's exactly what I was going to come to was, uh, I understand yoga in the Western world to be what we consider an asana practice, right? The physical movement. But in my studies and my history, the meaning of yoga is union. Like the actual word itself means union. And there's an eightfold path of it. There's eight pedals to yoga practice, period, right? More than just the asana. There's intellectual stimulation. There's gratitude. There's, you know, devotions, all these things that we would do. How do we like as holistic practitioners, bring in the holistic mindset and understanding for those that we're giving this to, right? That we're introducing through maybe asana or breathwork practices. And then we say, okay, but there's eight parts to this. This isn't just a one, you know, shot, you know, medicine. It's one that's cultivated in different aspects and dimensions of your life so that you can have this holistic experience of being in the present moment. And then with that, I pair it with, since we're dealing with yoga and therapy, most uh, psychology is about going into the past and, you know, facing those shadows or facing those trigger points. But in the present moment, which is what yoga and spiritual practices intend to bring you into and to keep while you're moving through life, it's it seems to almost be diabolically opposed to that condition, right? Of not going into the past or into the future. But when we are there, like doing therapy, those practices allow us to engage the past and the present effectively. How do you find the link of that eightfold practice bringing you to the present moment, providing a safe space for you to deal with the past and the future in a way that's effective now? What a great question. And thank you for bringing up the the eight limbs of yoga. Yeah, it's very much more than just this um, yoga asana. Uh, we're talking about how we interact with other people and how we interact with ourselves. Um, along with breath work, asana, flows, meditations. Um, so yeah, definitely bringing that eight limbs of yoga into it. I think you're, you made a really good point of a lot of psychology is looking at the the past and how we deal with the past. And I think bringing those eight limbs into, okay, we have we figured out what happened in the past. Now, what do we do with it, right? And so we can use these use these eight limbs of yoga to be able to move those um, those traumas, those emotions, that pain, that discomfort. It's a it's like a how do I describe it? Like a it helps you move it, but it also makes that very um, secure, comfortable space for you to do so in. Right. So we have all of these these things that come up. But then what do we do with it? And we need a safe space to do that. And so I think that's why yoga is the eight limbs of yoga are so powerful in that is that we don't have to be stagnant. And, OK, I've just brought up all of these emotions. Now, what do I do? Um, I'll give an example on yesterday. I had someone um, who so much trauma, significant trauma in their lives. And they became very ungrounded and they started um, dissociating. And so bringing in those eight, eight limbs of yoga to create a more safe space using the breath work. We used um, more visualization as well. We didn't do any kind of more uh, asana at that time. But those eight limbs of yoga we used to then create a very safe space for that person to ground, to calm. And then we can, they were able to move that flashback that came up that made them so ungrounded and move through that practice to allow to release that a little bit 
it didn't solve the problem at all. It didn't solve the trauma or completely heal, but it allowed that person to be in a comfortable space to move through it. Um, so I think that's how we use those eight limbs of yoga and combine it with the therapy part. These things come up. How, what do we do with it? Well, we can use the eight limbs of yoga. All right. Thanks, Alicia. We've got another question from Manny. He said, how can employers support employees who suffer from anxiety disorders and what workplace accommodations may be necessary to facilitate productivity and well-being? Yeah, this is something I bring up every single day in my agency um, because I think one distinction between uh, doing therapy in America compared to doing it elsewhere um, is the way that we're set up with billing and insurance. And we often have very back-to-back clients. And that is, it does havoc for anxiety, but for just our general health. Um, and so I talk to people about, okay, create some blocks in your schedule or make sure there's 15 minutes between clients so you have time to breathe to forward fold, to go to the bathroom, to to reflect on what you just went through and then be ready for the next person. So I think organizations can really help with people's, looking at people's um, daily schedules and not thinking from the mindset of, well, you need to see this many people. It's how can I create space for that practitioner to breathe in between those people and to help those people truly. Um, because like I say, my anxiety hasn't just disappeared. I, I manage it every single day but i try and create intentional blocks in my schedule so that i have time uh, to regulate it to re-regulate my nervous system um yeah so that's one thing and was there a second part to that question um facilitate productivity and well-being no i think that's it yeah it yeah and it it does facilitate productivity because if we don't have those breaks we're going to burn out so i got a question from mark mark asks what do you, in your opinion, what do you, in your opinion, think is the best way to start breath work with children? Mm. Yeah. Oh, I love that question because we've been doing breath work with the kids since I can't one or two. And so one thing, the one that I loved was um, a balloon exercise. And so I would have them take a really deep breath in and then breathe out. And I would kind of create this visualization. I'd be like, make the balloon bigger, make the balloon bigger. And so that would, they wouldn't know they're doing it, but they're extending the exhale. They just think they're making this imaginary balloon. Um, So creating things like that really helps. Um, And now our kids are very good at breathing, right? They use it. They know when to use it. They know when to tell us to use it as well. Um, So that's one thing that you can try with kids is that balloon one. Yeah. And one thing that I could add to that, just that, uh, do you know what that meditation, I wish I had it right here, but that little meditation, those cards we have for the kids. Mm. I don't know what it's called. Yeah, there's this, I think we just got it at Barnes and Noble, but anyways, it's a meditation cards and they're really nice, but it has just simple breathing. And then you walk them through and it's usually like imagining that they're an animal or it's imagining different things, but it's a good way just to casually do it. You know, they can't do anything wrong. You just breathe a little bit and then think about something. Um, yeah. All right. We've got a question from Dr. Laverne. She says, thank you, Alicia, for sharing your, story and expertise. I appreciated hearing about your own experiences. I'm really interested in organizational trauma and healing. Someone else mentioned this in the chat as well. I think it is so important for organizational leadership to create a culture of care for employees, social workers, helpers, but often are in survival mode and don't make employee self-care and community a priority. How can we begin, how can we begin to make a shift in this area? Yeah, it's so important because oftentimes we're coming into this field 
because we have experienced things, right? And we we can kind of empathize. And so if organizations are not acknowledging that, that these human beings who have had past experiences are trying to help other human beings with very difficult experiences, we have to start there. And so we have to have, um, like I say, these breaks and we have to have things that prevent these burnout situations that happen all the time. I see it all the time of people just having all these back-to-back clients and then burning out myself. I feel it if I have too many in a row and I just completely burn out. So organizationally, there has to be a shift from we are not these robot practitioners that just come into work and solve problems. We are human beings with our own experiences and we need to be treated that way. Um, And so, and people are also their own individuals. So what works for me may not work for you. Someone may be able to see seven people in a day, right? I don't feel comfortable doing that and giving the best quality care. And so I think there has to be that shift of, we don't have to have a standardized procedure of this robotic churning out help. We have to see people as humans, as individual humans, and what is going to work for them. Um, We have to make that shift. And if we're going to do it we, we, we should have done it yesterday, right? It has to happen. And so the more and more of us that can talk to our agencies and organizations about it, um, people are listening. I found that the more I talk about it, people are starting to listen. So, Yeah, and i start, you know, I'd, we could talk a little bit more about that, you know, like the over-professionalization of social work and like, you know, the idea that as a social worker, with social worker values, you can go and work for a corporation or for whatever and be expected to work. And I mean, I shouldn't say too many hours. I mean, like, but work, seeing too many clients, seeing too many clients that have trauma in their backgrounds. I mean, think about it. If you're working with someone who has, um, you know, big capital T trauma in their life, in their history, think how much that takes out of somebody and how much effort that would take to really help that individual. And could you really go hour and to back to back to back and seeing continuously seeing people with trauma in their lives and effectively help them? Maybe some days. And I like when you said, you know, some people may be able to do it to see several clients and some people may not. But also some people, that same individual may be able to do it some days and not be able to do it on other days and exactly. do it effectively. You know what I mean? It's, it's just too much. And so from my opinion, and again, opinions of the individual and not, you know, like the Department of Social Work at UAF or anything. But it's my opinion that this deserves resistance in social work. It deserves uh, some kind of pushback. Um, You know, other things that you see happening is, you know, you could go on Indeed and no matter where you search for LCSW, if you just type in LCSW, even if you put Alaska, if you put New York, if you put Hawaii, whatever, it's going to come up with the advertisements first. And it's going to say, you can make $100,000 doing therapy from home. But then Little do you know that that requires you to see like 60 clients or 80 clients a week, something like that. I know people that have done that do this in Hawaii. Um, and props to you if you're able to, you know, go through that to some degree. And, and, and I'm not saying you, the people that are doing that don't make a difference and you're not helping people. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that you, that social workers, you know, especially when we're getting up to like licensed clinical social workers, in order to be effective, they need to be able to take care of themselves. Um, and we need to prioritize and emphasize that. And there are plenty of places that don't do that um, everywhere. And so, in my opinion, social workers, you should think about that and how you might resist that. 
from my opinion. I was wondering what your thoughts on that are. Yeah. Yeah. Like we have to speak up about it. We really do. We talk about self-care and social work all the time. And it, it's great having these practices, um, being able to to regulate your own nervous system. But we also have to talk about um, where we're trying to help people. For working in an agency, um, like Cachet said in the chat, is that quiet quitting that's happening in that you're you're there, you may be there, but are you really providing the best help you can for yourself and for the, the other person? Um, so yeah, we do, we have to resist it. We really do. And I think, I think Deb mentioned about the billables. We'll always ask like how many billable encounters, that's the, the catchphrase, how many billable encounters do you have this week? Um, but what, why are we going from that? We're social work. We're, we're here to help people and we're here to, to talk about mental health. Why are we talking about how many billables we have? That's where we need to change the shift. Like, why are we talking from, from that standpoint? Um, so yeah, the more and more of us that can, and this isn't a, um, a huge dig on it, but we have to, we have to take those problems and we have to put them into action. Just like I've been talking about movement, right? We have to move it. And so we have to talk about it um, or no one's going to do anything about it. We often have times where our vice presidents or our CEOs are not social workers. Um, they're business people. Um, and so they, maybe they don't know, but may, maybe we just, we need to talk about it more so that people hear it. We need to be loud and we need to be strategic about it and knowing why we know why mental health is important. So we should advocate for ourselves so we can keep advocating for other people. Yeah. I mean, and there's no, you know, there's no way we could get to the bottom of this on the, in this conversation, you know, it, it's deserving of like, you know, a year's worth of dialogue really. Um, but it's also, you know, brings into the question of like, you know, you could go like for the whole country of the United States, or you could look at Alaska, for example, or Hawaii, or a certain community like Juneau. And the question is always that I look at is like, do we value social workers? And do we value the people that social workers work with? Um, and it's not an easy answer, because a lot of in a lot of ways, in a lot of places, you know, clinical social work means working with middle class people, it doesn't mean working with I'm not saying people don't, but I'm saying no, oftentimes that's the case these days. But, you know, it, it just begs the question, are social workers valued in your community, in the United States, in your state? Are the, are the people that social workers work with valued? Um, and I think oftentimes if we really look at it, that question is no, if you compare it to uh, some other things that we do find important. And I think that most individuals in anywhere we're at that we're talking about, would say to themselves that they do care about those things and that they do value those things. But oftentimes it is not reflected, you know, in the way that social workers are treated, in the way that um, people that social workers work with are treated and looked at and viewed. And that's the most evident in, in you know, in like, you know, the way people get paid and the way that they're valued in, in such a way like that, um, as far as social workers go. Um, you have any thoughts on that? Um, I saw Deb in the chat said that she came up with a uh, every other week a day off in her last position. Like it's just things like that. Like that's that's that resisting. Logical? Yeah, so logical, right? A day off to to not have to pretend to be sick. You know, <laughs> like we don't need to do that. We we should be able to say I need a, a day off or have that coming up, um, so we can sustain sustain what we're doing because we love we're in this field because we love it. We love helping people and we know that mental health is important. Um, 
So yeah, I love that idea, Deb. Thanks for sharing that. I think I'm trying to call in LOL. Oh, is she there? Or is there there, Cache. Here we go. You're live, Cache. Hello. Hey, can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Hi. We can hear from you. Hi, Christian. Hi, Alicia. <laughs> hey. Um, How's it? I I have been enjoying your um your I've been enjoying this conversation today. Hi, Kimberly. I just wanted to say hi to the to the friends. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think a key thing really quick, because I, I also don't want to take up too much time. Um, but a key thing that hasn't been discussed is that, um, you know, social work is systemic in the United States. Thus, it is directly linked to colonization, to racism tied to white supremacy. And that specifically keeps us in a, an oppressive model of servanthood for the general profession of social work as a, as a field. And so I think once we rest in that, then all the other stuff kind of makes sense. It's not like all of these other things, while it's very, very important to talk about are symptoms of a system that still, um, that, that relies on us to help, to want to help, which means to not get paid, to work over time to care for people that may be beyond our expertise, to pretend that we know things that we don't know, to carry out additional system failures that have continued to be failures for the duration of the development of the social work profession. And so I think it's really important to make sure that we hone in on that, because if we don't talk about how to take white supremacy out of social work, then the field of social work cannot so cannot and will not shift. Um, that's that's my personal and professional opinion. Um, it's why one of the reasons why I have felt the need to distinguish myself. And uh, so anyone who's ever received an email from me will see that I have social and then justice in parentheses worker, because I think that it is very important to the communities that I work with to differentiate myself from those who may be um, perpetuating the same ideologies of the social work profession that has us in the situations that we're in now. So I will let that go and tell you too that I love you. Hug and kiss the kids for me. I'm going to continue staying on, but I wanted to make sure I got that. <laughs> Thank you, Kasha. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge, a huge conversation. I hope when Kasha is on that that comes up because it's important. We need, we do need to talk about that, one hundred percent. Well, and social justice is in the code of ethics, right? It's our responsibility as social workers. We often don't talk about that, and to, you know, like just kind of t tying it together is. If you're overworked, you ain't got time to be a so to do social justice or to worry about social justice. You know, like I I'm just thinking about. Kasha, <laughs> you're still on. Oh, I'm so sorry. Hey, Shaka. <laughs> All right, um, but yeah, if you don't have the time, like if you're overworked, like for example, I'm just looking at Alicia's situation right now. Where she, how many clients are you seeing a week? Oh, uh, twenty-five. 25 and work 50 hours a week, maybe. Mm -hmm. So like, and then you come home to your three children after that. Do you have, do you feel the energy to, to go out and make a difference in that way or to make oh a difference goodness. somehow that way? I know you want to, but I'm saying, do you feel like energized to do that at this point? No, you're just completely exhausted. Yeah. 
I like to point out, you know, like those of us that are coming into social work, students and whatnot, um, you know, there, it's a good thing to think about, like, what kind of work do you want? Because there's a, a good way to look about it would be like, how um, attentive do you want to have to be? Because there's a big difference between like when I used to work with kids at the treatment facility. Yeah, I've got to be aware, but like it's a kind of more of a casual approach where you're sitting there talking to somebody, you know, where you, you need to direct all of your attention to them for the entire you know, for an hour or 50 minutes or whatever. Um, so it's, I think it, to think about that, like, do you like doing that? You know, you may like the idea of therapy, but you may not like the idea of sitting there for a, a whole day. And so things to think about. And like, how have you, how have you dealt? What are some tools that you've used to deal with that, to being in your office for all day? You know, there's, I know there's the basic things like standing desks and using mm-hmm. the ball and stretching and stuff, but how do you get through those days? I know you had um, neck problems that you pretty much attributed to, to being on the computer all day sometimes in Zoom meeting or not Zoom meetings, but Zoom therapy sessions. What kind of tools have you used in that area? Yeah. I mean, again, the, the daily practice of of yoga, getting out of my office, um, whether it's going for a walk or just, just being in a different environment, um, trying to change that. Drinking a lot of water, staying hydrated. A lot of the times we're not hydrated, making sure we're eating healthy. It's it's very much like that holistic approach to it. Um and going back to what Cache said, these these are things that they're very much the symptoms of that whole system that that's been created. And so, yeah, having to talk up about um, about those issues and those challenges. But we, we also do have to we, we can't get eaten up by it. Right. We have to we have to sustain ourselves so that we can um, fight for our profession and we can make these changes and fight for that justice. So that's why I think these things are so important, because if we don't look after our, our own mental health, and our own physical health, we can't do those things. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to the conversation with Cache coming up. Um, we've got shardal uh, has been sitting here waiting for um, to ask another question. So I put it in the chat, but I'll bring him bring you on. You can ask it if you want. Yeah, thank you, Shadal. Um, so like that forward fold one, um, that forward fold one that I mentioned is is a great one to just do. Like you can do it in my office so easily. Um, that one, I think there's there's a couple flows that um, just like sun salutation flows, different variations of it. I, I sometimes I will just teach people to to stretch up, forward fold, do a flat back, come back down, and just keep going through that because the motion of that. You're stretching out your spine. You're releasing your spine. You're activating the parasympathetic nervous system again. Just that kind of flow helps massively. You're loosening up your shoulders. You, you, you know, there's a lot of benefits to that. Um, other ones, I think, hip opening positions are really helpful. Um, we have to be really careful with them when we're talking about trauma because a lot of stress and trauma can get built up in our hips. Um, and so any hip opening poses you can do sitting down, you can kind of rest your um, heel on your thigh and open the hip that way um, and release some tension there. Uh, so I would say that they're, they're some ones that I like. All right. It's like MT's got you a deep question. We'll take the last question right here. It says, is psychology a Western tool or a human innovation? It seems to address the ego-centered social constraints of the Western mind rather and holistic wellness. What's the link? Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I think that goes back to your previous question. Um, 
because yeah yeah when we talk about psychology we are very much getting into that um that egocentric and the looking at the past and looking at the um the psychology of how that impacted us so I think it is a hard question to answer but I think it's it is a western tool it's also a human innovation um and I think the link there yeah I think the link that we have to make is again like I said with when we're bringing these things up that psychology does what do we do with it how do we link that to holistic wellness we have to move it we have to that's the biggest thing we can't keep it stagnant we have to move it um so yeah so whether or not it's a western tool I think there's there's part of it that we're bringing up a lot of this trauma and a lot of these um uh, challenging thinking patterns that then we have to move it and we have to create that holistic wellness through movement and through motion of those things that we've brought up. So. Yeah. And I think, you know, obviously for another day, another conversation, but would go be to go into like things like the DSM manual and to look at, you know, how diagnoses happen. Um, it might be worth looking into how the DSM is created and why it's created and how it's supposed to be used and, and, you know, comparing it to like what MT is talking about, a more holistic wellness model um, and see, does that align or does it not? Just food for thought. And hopefully we can get some dialogue on that another day. But I think that's it for now, Alicia, where time's coming up. It's been a wonderful time um, dialoguing with you. Uh, we don't, believe it or not, despite us having been together for the most part every day for, you know, years upon years, um, we rarely get a chance to sit here and talk because our kids get offended by it, actually, because when Alicia comes home from work, you know, they want her attention, you know, um, I want her attention. And so we'll be talking in the, say, for example, in the kitchen about whatever, all these important things about revolutionary yoga and the critical social worker and all this stuff. Um, and they're like, they get pissed off, like really, all three of them. They'll act out. They'll continue, you know, saying our names. And so it's just been a pleasure to just have, you know, a couple hours to sit here and talk with you. So um, I hope that you'll come on again. I might make you if, if you refuse. <laughs> but no, it's been great. Um, I feel like we created a lot of knowledge and wisdom here to share with people. I really appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you too, Kim. Um, any last words, Alicia? Um, I think... We covered a lot. I think if we to take away from what our discussion was is if we can advocate and live that holistic wellness ourselves, then we can give it to the people we're trying to help and we're trying to work with. And then we can create more resistance and more advocacy for our field in general and this systemic problems that come up. So that's yeah. my final thought. Thank you. And uh, I also want to thank the we weren't sure how many people were going to show up today. You know, you never know on these things like that. So I really want to humbly thank you from the bottom of my heart to everybody that came here live and um, supported us and had uh, wonderful questions and comments and feedback. And just for being here, we appreciate it more than you could ever know. Um, and with that, I want to ask, do you have a story to tell? If you listen, if you're tuning in and you're like, I want to be on the podcast and talk story. Um, well, just contact me at castetler at alaska.edu. That's C-A-S-T-E-T-T-L-E-R at alaska.edu. Or if you didn't get that, just Google UAF social work and you can find me. Um, and that is it for the episode. Kim, you have any last words? Yeah, I just wanted to say thank you, Alicia, for the open conversation we got to have today. And thank you to all the listeners and all the great questions. Thank yeah. you, Kim.
Yeah, thank you to you both. And I want to give a big shout out to Lee. You know, she's been a big part of this project. And like I said, she's busy with NASW duties, but she's been trying to tune in. So we missed you, Lee. And as far as next week, we have a special episode next week. Lee is going to be hosting and it'll be co-hosted by uh, Robin. And I, they're, they're going to uh, interview me. Um, so if you want to know anything more about me, I've had a wild life, a wild story. I'm not sure what we're going to talk about, but uh, come through. I'm, I'm sure I got a lot of stuff that you didn't know about me. Um, it might add some insight to social work, hopefully. Um, yeah, you can find episodes right here on the call-in app after it's recorded, or you can also find us on Apple and Spotify. Just search for The Critical Social Worker. We'll be here broadcasting every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Alaska time. And uh, like I said, next week we'll have me. Um, but the, I think one of the cool things is you'll get to have Lee as a host. Um, but, yeah, that's it. Tune in next week. And uh, until next time, peace. The Critical Social Worker is a collaborative effort between the University of Alaska Fairbanks Department of Social Work and a Conscious Party Productions. This episode was hosted by Christian Stetler and Kimberly Derums. It's a Conscious Party production. You have been listening to The Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast.